Tonight, straight from the source, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy ordering an impeachment inquiry into President Biden with no proof of wrongdoing and no House vote. Plus, Russia has not one but two dictators in the country tonight as Kim Jong-un's train has finally rolled in as Putin himself is weighing in on Donald Trump's criminal charges. Also, an escaped killer is not only desperate and extremely dangerous, he is now armed nearly two weeks after his Pennsylvania prison break. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Under pressure from the extreme voices in his party and at risk of losing his job, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy caved to the demands from the far right today. Today, I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. We will go wherever the evidence takes us. So far, there hasn't been any evidence that is taking Republicans anywhere. It's been nine months since they've been in the majority, and House Republicans have still not delivered any proof of President Biden directly benefiting from his son's business dealings. McCarthy launched the inquiry today unilaterally without having the full House vote on it. Now, that's a major about-face from just 11 days ago when he said, and I'm quoting the House Speaker now, the American people deserve to be heard. That's why, if we move forward with an impeachment inquiry, it would occur through a vote on the floor of the People's House and not through a declaration by one person. His decision not to hold that vote appeared to be an acknowledgement from McCarthy. He didn't say this, but what it seemed to be clear is that he does not yet have the votes to actually pass that if it were held for a House vote. If you remember, back in 2019, McCarthy criticized his predecessor, then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, for doing the exact same thing against then-former President Donald Trump. Speaker Pelosi happens to be the Speaker of this House, but she does not speak for America when it comes to this issue. She cannot decide unilaterally what happens here. She cannot change the laws of this Congress. She cannot unilaterally decide we're in an impeachment inquiry. When McCarthy was asked today what changed in just 11 days, this is what he told my colleague, Manu Raju. Of course, nothing has changed in those 11 days since McCarthy made that statement. Tonight, we should say from the White House, President Biden himself has not personally commented on McCarthy's move, but the administration called it, quote, extreme politics at its worst. Let's get straight to the source with New York Democrat and the former lead counsel in the first Trump impeachment inquiry, Congressman Dan Goldman. Congressman, thank you for joining me tonight. How are Democrats preparing to handle this inquiry? Well, the same way we've been handling the same inquiry for the last eight and nine months, which is to continue to point out the facts and the truth and that there is no evidence to link President Biden to anything related to his son. Uh, They have had eight or nine months uh, to collect evidence. They have collected more than 12,000 bank records, 2,000 suspicious activity reports, uh, witness testimony. The Biden administration has been very cooperative. And remember, Donald Trump famously said he would defy all subpoenas, and he turned over zero documents from his administration to the 2019 impeachment inquiry. And so now we're just going to continue with the same thing, because as Speaker McCarthy said in 2019, 
his declaration of an impeachment inquiry does not change any authority that these committees have. So their authority today to issue congressional subpoenas and get materials is the same as it was yesterday. Well, that's certainly not what Republicans think. I mean, we had Nancy Mace on last night. She said she supports an impeachment inquiry before McCarthy announced it today. And we asked her about what justifies this. This is what she told me. But isn't it supposed to be the evidence that leads you to pursue impeachment and impeachment inquiry? Well, that's what the inquiry is for. But there's already more investigations. I think that's where people are confused because it's not like there's no investigation. But we don't have Joe Biden's bank records yet. And so one way to do that, my understanding, would be through an impeachment inquiry. So are you saying that, that she's wrong there, that this does not give them any more power to go after those, those bank records of President Biden or his family members? Yes, she's wrong. Uh, as, and the speaker said it himself. Um, you would need a House vote to start a formal impeachment process. Um, that would potentially get, you know, more authority through the impeachment process. Of course, if Speaker McCarthy wants to talk about precedent, let's look at the precedent, which is that Donald Trump's administration gave zero cooperation, zero documents. But even just to uh, my friend Congresswoman Mesa's point about the bank records, they have over 12,000 pages of bank records, and none of them trace back to Joe Biden. They have looked at suspicious activity reports. None of them link to Joe Biden, which is why you always hear them talk about the Biden family or Hunter Biden. But they are not impeaching the Biden family and they are not impeaching Hunter Biden. This is an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. And there is no link, zero evidence to justify this. She has seen these reports. Obviously, she's on House Oversight. They went to the Treasury Department back in March, I believe it was. She claims that they would make people blush if they could see them. You're saying that she's lying about that? I watched her clip, and if you go back, she says it would make people blush if you saw uh, the suspicious activity reports related to the Biden family. She did not say President Joe Biden because there is no reference to President Joe Biden in those suspicious activity reports. They have gotten a ton of bank records, and those bank records do not go to Joe Biden. Their witnesses do not say that Joe Biden had any link, connection, interaction, involvement with Hunter Biden's business. This is a purely political, partisan game that they're playing at the behest of Donald Trump to protect him, to distract from him, and to try to help him in the election in 2024. And they are about to lead us into a government shutdown because they're distracted with these shenanigans that have no merit. And when you talk about the power that they have now that this is an inquiry, you're saying that unless that they have a full House vote, that they do not have the power to to request more documents from these agencies, that essentially you're saying the administration can ignore the request that they get from the lawmakers they just put in charge of No, they have the same power today that they had yesterday, and the administration has provided numerous documents and witnesses. They haven't specified what they have been unable to get. 
I haven't heard a single Republican say, we asked for this and we are not getting it. There is nothing that they're not getting. The Biden administration has been far more cooperative than the Trump administration was. Multiple different agencies have been cooperating with the Republican investigations. They've been doing this for eight or nine months. What I'm saying is they don't have any greater authority today than they did yesterday to get the materials, but they've gotten the materials. And unfortunately for them, those materials do not support any high crime or misdemeanor, much less any wrongdoing or misconduct. Is there any chance in your view that this inquiry does not lead to a full impeachment of President Biden? Well, uh, it'll be very telling. Um, There is a traditional uh, sort of conventional wisdom, I should say, is that once you go down this path, it's almost impossible not to ultimately take a vote. Um, But I can assure you, Caitlin, the reason why the speaker changed his mind in 11 days is he does not have the votes from his own party. There have been members on the moderate wing, on the far right wing, the Freedom Caucus. Ken Buck has come out and said that he does not see any evidence linking to Joe Biden. He does not have the votes. He is trying to save himself, save his own speakership, as he has been trying to do since January 3rd. That's what this is all about. If they do move to oust him, how would you vote on that? Well, I don't know uh, if that will come to pass. I think that, um, you know, the Republicans are in such disarray right now that Kevin McCarthy is afraid at every turn uh, that Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gaetz uh, is going to turn on him and that he's essentially held hostage by the extreme fringe right wing of his party. They are trying to renege on the debt ceiling bill that they agreed to and lower the top line appropriations amount in all the appropriations bills. They are demanding uh, outlandish and outrageous concessions uh, that you just can't do in divided government if you actually want to get anything done. And Kevin McCarthy, time after time after time, is negotiating with the terrorists, is placating the extreme wing, And that's why we are now going to be focusing in September on impeachment when we're about to have a government shutdown and we have a lot of really important legislation that we should be dealing with that they will not deal with. 18 days of funding left. Congressman Dan Goldman, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. I want to bring in now New York Times senior political correspondent and CNN political analyst Maggie Haberman. Obviously, this is by no means a surprise to anyone. This is the path that we've seen McCarthy take. I mean, maybe the way he took it there wasn't exactly what he said. I mean, this is something that Donald Trump has been talking about since July. So he's getting millions of dollars illegally from China. And then you say, hey, they impeached me over a phone call that was perfect. Why aren't they impeaching Biden for receiving tens of millions of dollars? Why isn't he under impeachment? Obviously, no evidence about the millions of dollars from China. But is it clear that Trump is a a major driving force in this to you? He is certainly somebody who supports it, is behind it, has been talking about it, as you see uh, in those clips, uh, has been talking about it uh, behind the scenes. Uh, How aggressively he is pushing for it with McCarthy directly, I think, is an open question. But there's no doubt that Trump, and this is his style, he sort of drops something into the conversation and Republicans take it up. And it's often offered as some kind of a suggestion. Um, It's not a surprise that it went this route. I, I, do, I do think it's true, though, that McCarthy's about face 
was striking in terms of requiring requiring a vote to move ahead. Why with do you think inquiry. so? Because I think that it speaks to the fact that his members are getting very restless and he sees a real concern for himself from his right flank. And he is very good at reading the room in that way. And he sees where danger is coming from. And, and he acted. Now, I don't think that anyone else has enough votes to win the speakership right now against him. But I do think it speaks to what everybody thought was going to happen when he became speaker, which is that he is going to be sort of beholden to a certain group of right wing Congress members. Yeah. And for some of them, an inquiry is not even enough. They want to move right. full steam ahead with it, a full impeachment of President Biden. Well, and it's important to note, Caitlin, that, look, to, to Congressman Goldman's point, we, we don't know. There's, there's no evidence so far that ties Joe Biden to any of this, uh, at least nothing that they have brought forward and that we have seen. Now, you know, they're, they're suggesting that that could change if they move ahead. Something else that could change if they move ahead is this could benefit President Biden. This could end up having ramifications for Republicans if voters who don't really want to see these kinds of inquiries all the time feel like this is going too far. And I think what you heard from the congressman just now, what he was talking about, about real work that has to get done, that's what you're going to hear Democrats talk about over and over and over again. Yeah. And what does an impeachment inquiry even look like if the if the government right. is shut down is another right. question. McCarthy went out of his way today to say this is only an impeachment inquiry. Obviously, that's likely to make moderate Republicans feel better about this who are in districts that President Biden won. But you know President Trump as well as I do, former President Trump, an impeachment inquiry is not going to be sufficient to a former president who was impeached twice, is it? I don't think so, although it's important to remember that he's also been very focused on getting his own uh, impeachment record expunged. That's Mm -hmm. been something he's been talking about a lot, too. Um, We will see which one is more important to him. But I do think, to your point, as we have seen former President Trump face more pressure from these criminal inquiries, he has ratcheted up the talk about impeaching Biden. And it will be surprising if he feels content stopping at we're just asking questions. Yeah, it seems to be a hope that it would muddy the water here. Waters here. Right. We have seen some moderate Republicans say they're kind of fine with this. They're surprisingly mm-hmm. on board a few of the moderates uh, here in New York. Senate Republicans, though, have been either outright dismissive mm-hmm. or deeply skeptical of this. Uh, Senator McConnell, I mean, how do Senate Republicans handle this, do you expect? I think it's a great question, and I think we're going to see in the coming days. But you are correct that a lot of them have expressed skepticism about these efforts so far, not just on on impeachment generally, but on where this is all heading in terms of the evidence. Now, could something happen that changes that? Absolutely, but we'll see. Yeah. Maggie Haberman, a lot of interesting times A lot of stuff. Thank you very much. Uh, A question, of course, what does this mean for America? Another impeachment inquiry into another president. The star witness in the Watergate hearings, John Dean, is here to put it all in perspective for us. Plus, Kim Jong-un is now in Russia for his meeting with President Putin, while Putin is defending Donald Trump over his indictments here in the U.S. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Only three U.S. presidents have ever been impeached. You have to actually go back to 1868 for Andrew Johnson. His was a partisan fight over the firing of his Secretary of War. 
More than a century after that, Bill Clinton was impeached for lying under oath and trying to cover up his affair with a White House intern. Then there was Donald Trump, impeached twice for trying to blackmail Ukraine into investigating his political opponent and then for his role in what happened on January 6th. Richard Nixon, of course, resigned before he could be impeached. That is where my next guest, former White House counsel for the Nixon administration, John Dean, comes in. John, glad to have you here uh, as we just are taking a step back and looking at what McCarthy's move today means. Because obviously uh, this could mean that President Biden could become the fourth president to be impeached. I mean, what do you make of the fact that we could see back-to-back presidents impeached when it used to be something that happened once a century? Caitlin, it's very unusual. I happen to start my career in government, working for the House Judiciary Committee, learning about the House of Representatives from the inside out. And what I'm seeing now is really sad. I was a young Republican lawyer, uh, and I don't recognize the party today. What they're doing is really just an effort to use the machinery of impeachment, which is known in my day as the big cannon, which was never taken out. Uh, even it was very reluctantly taken out during Nixon's presidency, some 20 months into Watergate uh, before they used it. So they're wielding it now as a political tool. And that's really a sad story because it's an important device as a check on democracy. I think that's really notable. I mean, it was 20 months into the Watergate investigation before before they talked about actually impeaching him, of course, then forcing his resignation. Exactly. What they they it wasn't until he fired the special prosecutor, which was a pretty overt act of uh, abuse of power, that the there are a number of bills that were introduced very quickly after the firing of Archibald Cox, the uh, special prosecutor, that resulted in the House Judiciary Committee reluctantly and slowly taking up impeachment. You're, you talked about not recognizing the party anymore. Right now, 2024 Republican candidates, they're kind of threading the needle on how to talk about this specifically. Chris Christie was on with, with Jake Tapper today, and this is how he phrased it. If, in fact, uh, you, know, you don't have greater facts than what you have now, it would be cheapening impeachment. I do think that an investigation needs to be had both by congressional oversight and by the special counsel. Um, there's enough smoke here that you need to look. What do you make of those two things? One saying, if there are no more facts than what we know now, that it's cheapening impeachment, but also talking about the necessity of having this investigation. I don't think anyone would complain about congressional oversight, but taking the step of, of going into an impeachment inquiry itself. Well, I don't know where uh, Chris Christie even finds probable cause. He's a former U.S. attorney. He knows what the basis of a criminal investigation is. The impeachment inquiry is something of an equivalent. Uh, An impeachment panel is often referred to as the equivalent of a grand jury. Uh, The evidence is presented and they make a decision as to whether to charge or not. And then it's taken to the Senate for a trial. Uh, I don't see any probable cause here. As Dan Goldman said... Uh, at the top of the show, uh, there's just no evidence. So this is all smoke and no fire. Well, Nancy May said they're they're doing it to get more evidence. I want to ask you about something, though, that I was looking at and I was talking to some former Trump DOJ officials about today. The Office of the Legal Counsel, which issues legal opinions from the Justice Department, 
when Trump was in office in 2020, issued an opinion that essentially House impeachment inquiries aren't valid unless the chamber has actually taken a formal vote to authorize them. That was obviously in response to to Trump's own impeachment inquiry that Pelosi had opened. She did so without an initial vote and then held one. But is that still binding for for the Biden administration? Not at all. Uh, The House, uh, excuse me, it's certainly not binding for the Congress. The Congress can do as the Congress wishes. It's a separate branch of government. Uh, It's sort of an advisory that they could bring a motion to dismiss the action because there hadn't been a a uh, House resolution to authorize the inquiry. Uh, What uh, McCarthy has done is unusual to use three committees to undertake an impeachment. Typically, it's within the jurisdiction of the House Judiciary Committee. He's made it within the jurisdiction of the Oversight Committee, as well as the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, Each has different expertise, uh, but typically they put members on a committee I, I, I think it's just to spread it around uh, because they think there's political hay to be made here and they all want to get in on the, uh, uh, the games, if you will. John Dean, we will see if this turns into a full impeachment. Thank you for joining us. Obviously, you can see this like very few people can. Pleasure. Thank you. Meanwhile, overseas, two global pariahs are about to meet. North Korean state media has now confirmed Kim Jong-un is in Russia. He has arrived for his sit-down with President Vladimir Putin. What it all means for the rest of the world, coming up. It is now official. Kim Jong-un is back in Russia for the first time since 2019. Russian state media releasing these images that you're seeing here of the North Korean leader briefly leaving his bulletproof train to meet with Russian officials. Up next, we expect a one-on-one meeting with Russian President Putin, which Western officials are warning could cement a major arms deal with Russia, getting weapons for its war in Ukraine in exchange for giving North Korea more advanced technology and economic aid that it so desperately needs. The Russian leader did not mention Kim today, but he did have something to say about the 91 felony counts that former President Donald Trump is facing. All that is happening with Trump is the persecution of a political rival for political reasons, and this is done in front of the public of the United States and the whole world. Join me now to discuss former Trump national security advisor and former UN ambassador John Bolton. I mean, we know what happens to Putin's political adversaries. He's referencing what's happening to, to Biden's political adversary here in the U.S. Why do you think he's weighing in on Trump's criminal charges? Well, I think he's trying to tweak the United States and, uh, and, and point to something that he thinks makes the United States look bad internationally. As you say, this, they play for really high stakes in Russian politics. And if you lose, you lose a lot more than higher office. Uh, but I think it's, uh, it, it's intended to show that uh, he's still sympathetic to Trump. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what Trump's response is. Yeah. He also had this argument when he was asked today or when he was speaking today about whether or not when Trump is back in office, whether or not the U.S., if Trump is back in office, if the U.S. would remain anti-Russian. And he seemed to think that no matter which American leader was in office, that they would. Though they accused him of special ties to Russia, it was complete nonsense, total bullshit. 
and he more than anything imposed sanctions on Russia. So what to expect in the future, regardless of who is president, is difficult to say. But it's unlikely anything will change definitively, because the current government has configured American society in such an anti-Russian manner and spirit. Do you think that's true, that if Trump is back in office, that there would be this anti-Russian stance? No, I mean, Trump himself has said he would try and negotiate an end to the war. He could do it in 24 hours. He just gets Zelensky and Putin into a room. That That isn't going to happen. But I do think uh, the attitude toward aid to Ukraine would change. And I think more fundamentally, certainly what worries me is that I think Putin would use this as an opportunity to withdraw from NATO. I think that's clearly something he wants to do. I think it would be a huge mistake. But this, that Trump th- would use that as an opportunity. Yeah, that this is it would it would be of more interest to him to withdraw from NATO than simply to cut off aid to Ukraine. So I think it could be a real crisis point in his presidency if he wins. Putin is getting ready to meet with Kim Jong Un. The U.S. worries that there is going to be this arms deal that they basically make. How significant is this? How dangerous do you think this is? Well, I think it's quite significant. I think it actually uh, goes well beyond a potential arms deal. From North Korea's point of view, this gets them back into really significant contact with Russia uh, for the first time since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Back in the Cold War, North Korea played off China against the Soviet Union very well, going back to the Korean War. But when the Soviet Union collapsed, they sort of lost interest, and North Korea became more and more dependent on China. This gives uh, North Korea going forward the potential to play Russia off, to get oil and gas directly from Russia, to get high technology in exchange for these weapons. So I think the big winner here is Kim Jong-un, but, but it also increases uh, Russian influence in, uh, in Korea and the peninsula and the whole geographic area at a time when I think the Russians are worried about being the junior partner in the Beijing-Moscow axis. Jake Sullivan, who has the job now under President Biden that you once had under President Trump, says that if this goes through, North Korea will pay a price. What do you think that price should look like? Well, with all due respect to the Biden administration, they're not making people who are under sanctions now, including North Korea and Iran, pay the price they should be paying. Uh, If our sanctions were really maximum pressure, which they should be, there wouldn't be too much more you can do. I'm just very skeptical that they will Uh, make North Korea really pay a price. And I think one long-term implication is, as North Korea ships off part of its armament capability, part of its ammunition, will they simply get replacements from China? Uh, And will they then, in turn, sell the Chinese weapons uh, to Russia? So that China can say, oh, we're not providing- China indirectly helping Russia. Yeah, exactly, exactly. When you, speaking of Putin, another person he praised today was Elon Musk, calling him uh, this, I believe he called him a brilliant person. I'm not sure, he said something along the lines of very praiseworthy of him. That has been a subject of focus of the leverage and the influence that Elon Musk has over the U.S. government because of the internet service that he's providing in Ukraine, Starlink. Would you be comfortable with the role that he's playing in the federal government if you were in a national security position still? No, I wouldn't. I mean, it it is uh, his decision to cut off the uh, Starlink capability in the in the in the face of a potential Ukrainian military operation uh, was was a direct interference in the conduct of the war. I mean, I think it's a good lesson to have more than one supplier on critical equipment, critical communications in particular, if you can do it and, and should be a warning to us looking ahead that we don't become too dependent on any one particular company for anything. Yeah, and they're disputing what that role looked like, but clearly it's still a massive one. John Bolton, thank you for thank being you. here tonight, Ambassador. 
Also here at home, a manhunt is intensifying after an escaped prisoner managed to get a hold of a gun. So now he is both extremely dangerous and he is armed and authorities are honing in on a specific area where they believe that he is hiding. Of course, it is now day 13. We have more next. Tonight, police in Pennsylvania are escalating efforts to find the escaped killer, Danilo Cavalcante, who is now armed with a stolen rifle. Officials say that they do believe he is in the perimeter, or at least within it, of where he was last seen shirtless on Monday night at a home that is 20 miles north of the Chester County prison he escaped from almost two weeks ago. He reportedly entered and opened a garage while the homeowner was inside and grabbed a 22 caliber rifle. The homeowner then drew his pistol and fired at Cavalcante as he fled. Now police say the convicted murderer couldn't be desperate, could be desperate enough to use that gun, and they're warning residents within the search area to secure buildings, property, and vehicles. Seen as Brian Todd is in Pennsylvania inside the search area. Brian, obviously it has now been 13 days, and the guy is now armed. I mean, what are officials saying behind the scenes? What is their sense of whether or not uh, they're hopeful they are actually going to be able to locate him? Well, Caitlin, at least very publicly, they are projecting confidence that they're going to get him and that they're going to get him soon. Just today, the governor of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, had a very pointed message for Danilo Cavalcante. He said, quote, the gig is up. You should turn yourself in. They have been projecting confidence pretty much all along the way. But, of course, now we're almost two weeks into this. And, of course, the, the game completely changed with the news last night that he had stolen that 22 caliber rifle. I spoke with Lieutenant Colonel George Bivens of the Pennsylvania State Police earlier today, and he had some concerns about what he could do with that weapon. It's a possibility that he'll attack the police to try and get away. It's a possibility he would attack as a civilian. It's a possibility that it would be a suicide by cop. Any of those scenarios are possibilities. Our people are trained to deal with them. This really doesn't change anything in terms of our tactics and the equipment and so forth that, uh, that we're utilizing. And one other thing to note is that that weapon, according to police, has a scope and a flashlight attached to it. One disadvantage that Cavalcante may have tonight, though, Caitlin, is I think you mentioned earlier, he could be moving around now shirtless. Police say that he ditched a green hoodie and a white T-shirt at the foot of that driveway of the home where he was shot at by that homeowner. And earlier today, they said to their knowledge, uh, they don't believe he has other clothing on. Brian Todd, obviously, keep us updated if there are any updates tonight. Thank you for that. I want to get more insight with retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Daniel Daniel Bruner, who is joining us tonight. Thank you so much for being here, Daniel. I mean, obviously what Brian was reporting there, Cavalcante now has this 22 caliber rifle. It is outfitted with a scope and a flashlight. I mean, how much harder and more dangerous does that make a search like this? I think it, it multiplies it uh, by an X factor that he now is armed he now has a scope, he has the flashlight, and he's well aware, he knows the area. He traveled from the prison to the home of his associate without the utilization of GPS. He knew this home, this associate's home from years ago. He remembered it. So he's familiar with the area. He's familiar with this. If the tactical teams, especially at night, are moving very methodically, very carefully, they might encounter him, unfortunately, if he sets up an ambush. He could be aware of them. He could see them coming from uh, half a mile away, and he could set up a, a, a quite dangerous ambush. So the tactical teams are you know, some of the best trained officers and agents that I know, 
and they're moving very carefully and it's a large area, but they're moving you know, carefully to be able to find him and push him into a direction where he makes a mistake, where he is encountered by a civilian. He's the civilian sees them out their window. They're able to call 911 and then everyone else is uh, able to encounter him and hopefully capture him alive. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of those officers that are part of this search effort. 500, I believe, is the total. It's from state police to the FBI, the ATF, U.S. Marshals, all who are looking in that perimeter so carefully, as you were noting. But, you know, we've learned that he was able to, to slip through perimeters before. I mean, what do the internal efforts look like when you're 13 days in and you still haven't found the person? Well, the internal efforts are extremely complex. There's a, a very large-scale command post that it's set up, and most likely Pennsylvania State Police is the command, uh, net, uh, the command structure, and everyone else is assisting. They've got analysts, they've got um, other agents, other uh, agencies providing uh, support. There's most likely headquarters, FBI headquarters is providing their support, whether it be computer analysts, phone analytical work. So there's a lot of people at the command post they bring in all the, the tips that come together, and then they are distributing it. In addition, you have an additional investigative team, which is out in the field, interviewing all the family members, interviewing cellmates, interviewing associates of cellmates to see if they can get into the mind of the fugitive and figure out what his next step is. Why is he traveling north and west and then to east? It's try to establish the pattern, get ahead of him, and create the situation where he makes a mistake where he throws his green sweatshirt off and now he's shirtless on a rainy night. He'll be cold. He may end up making a mistake and trip across the street and someone will see him and then hopefully law enforcement will take him in custody. Yeah, I mean, they've been waiting on on him to make that mistake for 13 days now and it hasn't been one that materially has affected the search yet. I mean, when you talk about what they're analyzing and what they're asking people about, what is the most valuable thing that they would have uh, to help them locate him? Without a doubt, the most valuable thing that can assist in this investigation is the, the community. Having his photograph and the updated photograph of him clean shaven, having those sets of eyes of the community looking out the window, seeing if there's somebody uh, walking by that just doesn't seem right in the neighborhood. People know their neighborhood. People know who their neighbors are. If they see someone that just doesn't fit in, call 911. Call your local law enforcement. And that tip will get filtered into the command post and will get filtered and they will look at it. They will analyze it. Those people in the community know their neighborhoods best. It's important, though, as he did last night, is he entered an open garage. He clearly looks for an opportunity. Close your garages. Lock your car doors. Take the garage door openers out of your cars. Set up your house carefully because he is a danger to the community uh, and to all the civilians. But... The people in those communities, that's the best thing they can do is look out their window or while you're driving through the area, keep an extra eye out and then call 911. Even if you think it's nothing, call 911, call your local law enforcement, call the FBI and provide that tip. Daniel Bruner, we will see if they get any closer to locating him. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Caitlin. Ahead, should a presidential candidate's marital status matter in 2023? Republican hopeful Tim Scott certainly doesn't think so, as he's addressing questions about his love life following a new report. Now to the 2024 race tonight, and one Republican candidate in particular, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, who happens to be the only Republican candidate in the race who is not married. 
Quote, Tim Scott's girlfriend is the headline on a deeply reported piece today in the Washington Post by the reporter Ben Terrace, who writes, quote, I decided that, yes, I would try to figure out whether Tim Scott has a girlfriend, but I would also investigate a deeper question. Does anybody care? Short answer to the first, yes, the senator does have a girlfriend, but he is not revealing her name and says he can't imagine dragging her onto the campaign trail. As to the second question posed by the reporter, Tim Scott himself has wondered aloud whether or not voters truly would care. To suggest that somehow being married or not married is going to be the determining factor of whether or not you're a good president or not, it sounds like we're living in 1963 and not 2023. My next guest, Rob Godfrey, has long been involved in South Carolina Republican politics. He worked for Nikki Haley, including leading the team that rolled out Scott's appointment to the Senate. Rob, obviously, you know, you know the state that Senator Tim Scott hails from very well. The reporter here, Ben Terra, says he was curious, and I'm quoting from the piece now, about voter interest or lack thereof in Scott's love life or lack thereof and how it might illuminate the politics of marriage, family and masculinity in today's GOP what do you say? Do voters care? You know, I agree with the senator. I don't think that voters care about something like this in 2023. And I think that the way that the reporter characterized it, um, you know, kind of got it wrong. I don't think this is anything more than a candidate who, while he understands that in a presidential campaign, he's going to face a higher level of scrutiny than he's ever faced in his life. His first instinct is to protect the people that he cares the most about. That includes his family. That includes people who may one day become a part of his family. That includes his staff. And that's what I think this is. Nothing more, nothing less. When you look at it from the political perspective, I mean, evangelicals and Republican voters obviously had no issue putting Donald Trump inside the White House. He had he was thrice married. Uh, The Access Hollywood tape obviously came out not long before the election. Is that something that factors into account with whether or not, you know, why would those voters care whether or not Tim Scott is single? I don't think they would. And I think there are a couple of things that prove that. First of all, um, the most, the thing that proves that the most right now is the fact that in, in poll after poll, Tim Scott continues to gain momentum in places just like Iowa in the early primary states that are going to mean the most in this presidential election. Second, in South Carolina, where he's been on the ballot time after time, people don't care about stuff like this. They've elected him to the United States House. They've elected him to the State House before that. They've elected him to the Senate. These questions haven't come up among voters. They come up among reporters. They come up among the operative class. But I wouldn't be the first one to tell you that the chasm between the interests uh, between the operative class and reporters and actual voters who turn elections is very, very wide, and they have very, very different priorities. Yeah, and it's not just a Republican thing, I should note. I mean, Democrat Senator Cory Booker gets the same questions, same kind of thing uh, that you're referencing there. I think the other part of this is that, you know, running for Senate is a lot different and has scrutiny, but certainly not as much as a presidential campaign, which brings a lot of that with that. Uh, Do you believe that that Senator Scott's campaign knew they were going to get questions about this? They were prepared to answer questions about this? Look, Senator Scott has always surrounded himself by professionals. I have absolutely no doubt they anticipated that this question could come over the course of the campaign. But when it comes to protecting the people that you care about the most, you never know how exactly you're going to answer it in the moment. And I think that Senator Scott is handling it just fine. 
What we forget is that we live in a very high information age and we live in an age where people have more access to candidates than ever. So if people really care about an issue like this, he's in Iowa, he's in New Hampshire, he's in South Carolina regularly. And the great thing about these early primary votes is that voters and caucus goers get the chance, unlike unlike they do in any other state, to go right up to the candidates, look them in the eye, and ask them about issues that are on their mind. And if this issue is on their mind, they'll go up to Senator Scott and they'll ask him about it. He'll have a chance to answer it. And I think he'll dispense with it the way it's been dispensed with any other time it's been asked and that people will vote for him based on the strong record he has in the Senate. Um, and they'll, they'll, and they'll, uh, they'll cast their votes and make their decisions accordingly. I mean, there's so many bigger issues in this campaign whether it's yeah. the economy and jobs and the and inflation and things people are talking about and things that actually matter to people day to day, that this is just not something that voters are talking about. Yeah, certainly they do have a lot of questions at those events. I've seen many of them up close. Rob Godfrey, I know you have as well. Thank you for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me. With cold and flu season around the corner, the government says many of the popular decongestants that you grab over the counter don't actually work and could even be removed from store shelves. That story next. Tonight we are learning that some of the colds and allergy medicines that you might use don't actually work. An FDA panel found that the main ingredient in many of the over-the-counter medicines that treat nasal congestion is actually ineffective, especially when it's in tablet form. Phenylephrine is in drugs like Benadryl allergy plus congestion, Sudafed PE, Vic Sinex, and many other. These popular brands have generated nearly $1.8 billion in sales in just the last year alone. But now the FDA is going to consider removing these products from the market. We'll let you leave it at that and let you go clean out your medicine cabinet now. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to turn it over to CNN Primetime with Abby Phillip, which starts right now. 